Thank you. And thank you so much um, to the university for inviting me. I'm going to talk about a completely different side of misconduct to, to the, um, the issues that Jeff raised. I'm going to be talking about what I'm terming unconscious misconduct. I mean, essentially, you can probably put it under the banner of bad science, um, but it's unconscious misconduct. I don't think many people mean to do it, but it happens, and it's something we really need to be aware of. And I'm also going to just touch on the implications of unconscious misconduct for technology transfer. So again, as Jeff said, there are the big three. And in the literature that I was looking at, they're actually termed FFP, fabrication, falsification, and plagiarism. And plagiarism's estimated at at least 4% in the, in, in the scientific literature. I mean, I should suspect that's an underestimation of, of the plagiarism, although, of course, there are now tools to at least deter, um, check plagiarism um, in its grossest sense. However, I'm not going to touch on those, and Jeff touched on those um, adequately. I'm going to touch on the last one, questionable practices. These are things like taking other people's ideas and overselling results, and inappropriate co-authorship. And inappropriate co-authorship has been estimated in studies to be between 30 and 31 and 37 percent. Um, People are putting the wrong authors on. They're not crediting authors um, with the with where they should be crediting authors. However, as Jeff alluded to, it's very difficult to estimate prevalence. The analysis of reports or retractions don't estimate prevalence. You can say, well, you know, I'm, I'm retracting this report, and because I've made an error, or I'm, I've um, I uh, haven't credited the right person, but that's really the last resort, and usually if somebody's forced to do so. And questionnaires really have problems. If you're trying to understand um, what is the, what questionable practices are out there and the prevalence on it, you obviously, people are going to bias their, their, their answers in a questionnaire towards socially acceptable behaviors. So certainly there are a lot of questionable practices that we don't really deal with. Um, the big three, I think, if, if it comes to light, and I think Jeff said some of, the, some of the problems of bringing the big three, fabrication, falsification, and plagiarism to light, there are problems there. But even with questionable practices, you're gonna have an even lower um, uh, bringing to light of those practices. So I'm going to assume researchers are honest. So um, on the side of the academic, I'm assuming researchers are honest. So we, we're not fabricating results. We're not um, falsifying data. So we assume researchers are honest. There's major issues, and major issues both for your research and for technology transfer. In terms of questionable practices, the overselling of results is a huge issue. I know that from my um, university, we've had a major problem with this. Um, I, after many years, have got to know the particular researchers, but when I first started at the university and, and the researcher would speak to a company, and essentially the way they speak to the company, this is enormous. We are ready to go to the market. It is ready. It, 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 you have to invest in this technology. 
And yes, the company must do their homework, and if it's a small company, often they don't. They don't understand what they're looking at, so a small company will often try and take a technology from, an, from a researcher and will suddenly realize we're five years away from the market. There's a huge amount of investment still to make in this technology. It's sort of, I always say it's the teaspoon effect. I'm there with those particular academics whenever they speak to someone because I've got to say, yeah, it's not this big. We, we've got a teaspoon of the stuff. And it was interesting at um, a conference in the States last year, it's not unusual. It's a lot of the times people have, have got a teaspoon of the stuff or a gram or half a gram. And to make this viable, you need to show you can make it on kilogram or ton scale. So generally, there's this, this overselling of results. And it, I don't think it's, it's not because they're dishonest. It's because they're passionate about their technology and what they've managed to achieve. But I think particularly for us who are at the end of the technology tree, you know, when we've got to actually get it into industry, we need to really understand what stage that technology's at and how big it is and not listen to the overselling of results. I think in our case in South Africa, it's fairly new to technology transfer and certainly in the first few years that I was a tech transfer officer, I was often bamboozled by the researchers. I think I've become wiser over the years and um, I know when, when they're talking about the teaspoon and when they actually have something ready for the market. So overselling results is a real problem. I think the other major issues are data selectivity and irreproducibility, and I'll touch on that just now, as well as statistical errors. And there is a, a, a supplement to Nature, a special edition in Nature in 2012, talking exactly about this. A lot of it's on biotech-type research, but I think certainly it goes across all areas of research. Too many sloppy mistakes are creeping into scientific papers. And that's a general trend because I think, as Jeff said, the incentive to publish, we're rushing it, and the peer review panels are not necessarily picking up all of those errors. And I think most of you, or some of you, will have seen this type of data. And this was specifically preclinical oncology research, preclinical um, cancer research, 53 landmark studies. Now, these are studies that were, you, were the basis of further work by many, many, many researchers. So we're not talking just a study that wasn't looked at again. These are landmark studies. Only six were reproducible by a lab, um, by you know, a well-respected laboratory. Six studies out of 53. So all of that future data that was generated from those studies was in question now. In 4,600 studies across the scientists, the proportion of positive results rose by more than 22% between 1990 and 2007. Now, what that's saying is that maybe you say well, we're getting better at doing research, but actually what it's saying is that you publish positive results, you're more likely to get published. Publishing negative results, you're less likely to get published. The problem is negative results or showing that it doesn't work is just as important as you will all know, and we're not publishing that data. And um, I think if you see, these are the um, these are the, the the literature analysis across the disciplines. There's a tendency to publish only positive studies, and in fact, interesting, 
the, um, the worst was psychology and psychiatry. And if you look at the literature, there's been a huge issue in this field. Have a look at the literature. I was quite horrified that particularly in that field, there's been a huge amount of the only published positive data, and, and the controls are often a bit, mm, controls aren't quite the right controls. Somebody tries to replicate that, and they're just not reproducible. Um, but interesting, I mean, even a, ha a hard science, you know, a material science, is, um, is th there's a huge proportion of uh, papers supporting um, you know, the, the, the uh, positive hypothesis. Um, the best is actually space sciences, but I suppose nobody wants to send something into space and it's not really um, correct. So maybe we're a bit, a bit more careful. But as you can see, there's, um, there's a lot of data that's positively reported, which is great, except that we're not seeing the people who got the negative results. So we're not actually publishing those um, negative data. There's a lot of journal articles starting to creep in saying there's a huge amount of statistical errors. The incidence of papers in cell and molecular biology, and I'm reading this quote at the bottom, that have basic statistical mistakes is alarming. The basic stats. Too few data points. It's a classic one, too few data points. Tests done on too few animals or people. We, we had a, um, a particular piece of work it was on um, uh, mosquito repellent. That's obviously a big issue for us with malaria, mosquito repellent, one that would work better. And it was patented. And I came to my university, and this was patented. So I didn't question the data because it's been patented. But as you know, you can, I mean, you can patent something. As long as it's novel, it doesn't matter if it's done on one person or 10 people or 100 people. You can patent it if it's got that novelty and utility and, ob and, and non-obviousness. But it doesn't mean that it's scientifically sound. And when we finally started having problems with this technology, we went back and had a look. We'd done it on three people. Three people, we're looking at a mosquito repellent. Something like a mosquito repellent, I'm not a statistician. You do on 30 people, you do on 100 people, you do on 300 people. You don't do on three people. Those three people, it showed novelty, showed non-obviousness of this particular compound. But it's not valid data to actually be, um, be putting out there. So test done on too few animals or people. Incorrect statistical methods used. And again, I've got an example from my university. We had a technology that was for braid removal, and I think, as you know, um, many African women have braids in their hair where they join other hair to their, to their hair. Putting it in is a major problem, but taking the braid out is a huge issue. And there's a few formulation, few, few things on the market that you can help take out more easily. And one of our students came up with a new formulation. And for her actual research, was fine. She pulled the hair and the braid apart in a, in a tensile tester, and it showed that there was less friction. So it's great. So for the purpose of her study, which was a, an honors study, so it was early and it was good enough for that study. Then she did tests on people, and she did a huge number. I mean, she, I think she did about 300 people spread across numerous hair salons all over um, our city. 
and she it was well thought out. There were controls, there was water, there were two other products, and she came out of this data and she presented, and we were starting to write the marketing material for this, and I just said, how much better is it? She said, well, um, um, let me send you the stats. So she sends me the raw data with the stats. And I'm not, as I said, not a statistician. And I looked at it and I thought, hmm, something's not right here. I don't know what it is, but there's something wrong with her null hypothesis and hypothesis. I sent her to a statistician. She'd used completely the wrong statistical method. Now remember, this was not part of her research. This was sort of just after her research. So her research was fine. But just after her research, she's now doing real field tests. Completely the wrong method. The right number of people. The right controls. But just by changing the method, because it wasn't normally distributed data, it showed that using water to remove the braids was better than using her formulation. So needless to say, we killed that project quite quickly. It wasn't, she wasn't deliberately falsifying data. It wasn't, it was unconscious misconduct. It was bad science, if you like. But she's not the only one, and she's a 20-year-old student. We, in, in, in nature, you're finding a lot of literature on people who are doing it, and they're, they're, they're known experts in their field using the wrong statistics. Incorrect controls is a big one, particularly in biological research. And using statistics for in identical replicates and not independent data. And again, in a, in a lot of biological research, this is a huge problem. Um, this this, this uh, Vore, who wrote this article, actually goes through sort of statistics 101 for biologists in this article and says, these are the things you have to do. I shouldn't be telling you this, but these are the things you have to do. Um, and I think so. It's, an, it's a general worldwide problem. Um, and apparently, he, I mean, he's saying we're not teaching our students. Who, if they're not statisticians, we assume they don't need to know stats enough. And actually, we should be teaching all our students statistics so they can go to a statistician but understand what they're actually getting out. Now, just very briefly, my last slide just on the technology transfer process. Now, of course, it's close to my heart. This is what I do, and I've been burnt with um, bad science, I should say. An external review of data could include peer-reviewed publications. Mm, you're trusting that the peer review process is good, and, and hopefully that pick up you know, really obvious mistakes, or use of independent consultants or academics. This is something we now do. My university, after a couple of different issues, has said we, will, we want an external independent review of data before we commercialize. Now, what that means is at some point in the process, because we all know that technology transfer is not a linear process, it goes, so it's, the way I described it to them is that we get the data and then we're going to do this and do this and commercialize. And, and they sort of think of handing over the fence. It's not like that. So at some point in this continuum, I do an external independent review. Sometimes it's a peer-reviewed publication. Sometimes it's an academic from another institution. Sometimes it's an external consultant. And we have picked up stuff that is not, again, it's not misconduct. They're not fabricating data. But if you do it this way, actually you'd get, you would just get better data to support your theory. It's controversial. It's helped me because it's not me saying it. It's the university saying it. But 
And when I speak to people, they say, immediately they say, oh, you can't do that. You have to trust the academics. But we've all seen from Jeff's um, talk, as well as from some of the um, stories that I've said, there are some issues. And even in the States, uh, the, the reaction I got when I mentioned this at a conference in the States was, you have to trust the academics. But that's also there, you're getting these problems. So an external independent review of data before tech transfer, I'm not saying before publication necessarily, although I think that has problems, but before technology transfer and taking it to a company does help me. And then an independent statistical review, paying particular attention to the statistical significance for the potential licensee, and that's what we're also trying to do. We're starting to say, are we asking the right questions? Because typically, work is done, and they're not asking the questions we need to ask from a licensee's point of view. Somebody who's going to take this technology needs to know certain things about the data. So I just wanted to give you a touch on bad science, it, unconscious misconduct. And I think it's very prevalent. I think we all see it. I mean, certainly my researchers will say, mm, yeah, I didn't think that was a great piece of work by that professor, but people don't report it. And often when it comes down the chain and I have to deal with it, I have to make sure that the data is valid and it has integrity. But I quite like the fact that we formalized this process and it's not just me saying, oh, I don't like that academic and I don't trust him, I'm going to, I'm going to check his data. We formalize the process. We do it for everything we're going to try and commercialize. So it's not a witch hunt by my office, it's a university policy and that's really helped me. But that's what we've done, and I, I hope that in your institutions you, you think carefully about, um, about the, the, the validity of your data, because certainly this is also a global problem. Arigato.